Sego, I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to welcome you to the program. Before I get into uh, two topics that I'd like to discuss today, I want to remind people that we are listener-supported radio. Resistance Radio uh, being broadcast here by WPFW uh, in Washington, D.C., relies on your contributions. And so I'm asking you, as I will with every program, to go to the fund line, go to the pledge line, go to 202-588-9739 and make a contribution to the station and do it in the name of this program. I greatly appreciate it. It uh, sends a clear message to management that you that you appreciate the diversity that the station offers and, and offering a native voice as they've done for so many years. Uh, or you can go online, you can go to WPFWFM.org and you can follow the prompts there to make a donation. And again... If, if you make a donation and you're looking to make it in the name of this program, <clears throat> the show may be listed as the, the John Kane show uh, as opposed to Resistance Radio. Uh, but scroll down and look for it. If it's not Resistance Radio, then look for uh, the John Kane show and uh, make a contribution in the name of the uh, in the name of this uh, program. I greatly appreciate it. All right. So Deb Halland, the uh, uh Congressman from or congressperson from uh, New Mexico, uh, really from the, the uh, Laguna uh, Pueblo um, area uh, and people of New Mexico, uh, has been confirmed as the Interior Secretary for the United States. She is essentially the, the first Native cabinet member. Um, uh, not just, and, and this isn't just a, a gender barrier. This is a uh, an ethnicity or a a people of color barrier that that she has broken. Um, and I'm going to say, uh, if you've listened to this program, if you've ever listened to my uh, Let's Talk Native podcast, you know that I am not a real big fan of Native people entering into uh, non-Native government and and thereby somehow suggesting that because of that entrance, that we are now adequately represented in Congress or in, in state legislatures or, in this case, the uh, this cabinet position with the Interior Department. I I don't enjoy the same euphoria and, and enthusiasm that others uh, have enjoyed and have, have you know reveled and basked in here. Uh, I'm more skeptical. So the question that that I want to address is. What would it take for me to be less skeptical? What would, what would be some of the expectations or some of the accomplishments that, that uh, Deb Hallin could have as the Interior Secretary to, to change my mind or to, or to silence my criticism? And, and I don't know that my criticism will ever be silenced. I think part of the reason for offering criticism is to guide the conversation. And while it may come across to some as being too critical, um, I think it's 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 fair for Native people to uh, to point out that even when Native people, or frankly, this can go for any people of color, even when people of color are placed into positions uh, within a system, it doesn't have a great uh, change to the the system. And so, when we talk about things like systemic racism, we know that just adding a, a few colorful faces in the crowd doesn't necessarily change the system that much. So. But here we are. So we do have, for the first time in, in American, in U.S. history, a, a cabinet member uh, that is Native and, and, and a Native woman uh, at that. 
I have talked about a, a few of the problems that I have with uh, with Deb Hallen in terms of her own background, her history, and that kind of stuff. And I'm and I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to even look back. I am going to look forward with some sense of optimism that there are some things that she can accomplish. Now, first and foremost, I want to be clear that she doesn't represent me. In fact, she doesn't represent Native people. She was not elected, even as a congressperson, she wasn't elected by Native people. Some Native people voted for her, but she was primarily voted into office by white people. That's just the way the U.S. electoral system works. So she was, her, her, the main body of her constituency was, was non-Native. So, and she certainly wasn't voted into office by, by me or any Native people outside of the congressional district um, that she represented in New Mexico. Nor was she appointed by uh, by me, and you know none of us had any real uh, input as to her nomination. Um, you know, some people lobbied for her and and, and pushed for for the nomination in, uh, as the Interior Secretary, but we didn't really have any choice in the matter. She basically serves at the pleasure of the of, of President Joe Biden. Her main job is to protect the national interest of the United States. Having said that, she is native, and she has, uh, and she has, uh, you know, native background. She has family history. She has, you know, some knowledge on uh, on not only her experience, but as more broadly as a, as a native experience. So, what would it look like with her in that office? Well, again, let me be clear. She won't speak for us. And she doesn't speak for us. She's serving. You know, she she works for the for the uh, for the United States. She doesn't work for us. She has not been cast or elevated or or put into this place by Native people. So I just want to say that. So what could she do? What the main thing that she could do is make sure that our voices are heard. I don't want her to speak for us because I don't think she can. You know, even even as a Native person. She's already compromised because she has been put into this position by, you know, you know, by, by Joe Biden and by um, you know, the Democratic Party. I mean, she was nominated, you know, almost across party lines. I think four or five Republicans crossed over and um, and approved of her nomination. But, you know, basically, she's been put into this position by white people. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just going to say that. Um, and I don't know that she has enough of a diverse background, you know, certainly speaking to you as a, as a Gunyagahaga, a Mohawk, um, a, you know, part of the Haudenosaunee, I don't know what her Haudenosaunee background is. I don't know that she could speak um, accurately to represent our concerns. There, there are some concerns that, that affect all Native people, and I think we, and I'm going to talk about some of those. But the best thing she could do is not try to represent our concerns, but to leave the door open so so our own people can be represented. Let our voices be heard. Give us a, a give us an avenue for our concerns to be heard first off, and then addressed. I'm not expecting her to to you know be a big uh, part of changing U.S. law or um, introducing new legislation. Or creating, you know, you know, full wholesale changes in regulatory systems. Look, there's, there's plenty of regulation in, in place that should have protected Native people from overly aggressive states, um, industries, 
you know, federal government, state government, whatever. I mean, there, or from, from crime from the outside. There's plenty of laws in place. They're just not enforced. And oftentimes they're, they're sidestepped. So when a pipeline is going to be you know, pushed through our territories or near our territories, there isn't a whole lot of consideration um, given to Native voices. And there are ways that they've, they've found loopholes to, uh, to jump through to make sure that there aren't the proper um, you know, sc screenings or, or studies or reviews done to, to make sure that they are environmentally sound, culturally sound, and that kind of thing. Now, I will say... One of the things that I haven't heard out of, of Deb, out of Deb Halland or even during her confirmation hearing, and I, and I won't say that I listened to it all, but I didn't hear her position on the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. To be clear and, and to, to kind of back up here, when the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was, uh, was voted on by the, the General Assembly of the United Nations, four nations voted against it, the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, um, Australia and New Zealand. Now, since then, all four of those nations have expressed some support for the aspirations of the agreement, but never have really taken a firm stance on the agreement, the agreement as, it, as it stands right now. In fact, most of them have suggested they support the aspirations of the, agreement, uh, of the declaration, provided it doesn't conflict with their laws. Well, that's the whole reason for having this. The whole reason for having this international standard put out there is to affect the laws of countries that are, are, that are uh, you know, uh, violating that international standard. And to be clear, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the minimum standard for survival and dignity of Native peoples. That's, that's in the declaration. It, I mean, it, it states it clearly. So it's not some utopian um, you know, fix for, for the problems that Native people face with dominant cultures around them. It is, it is a minimum standard, and one that the United States and Canada simply can't meet, and, or refuse to meet. I'm not saying can't meet, they refuse to meet. Among the things that they refuse to meet is the repetitive theme of the, the declaration that says, free, prior, and informed consent must be obtained from Native people before any variety of things are done associated with land loss or land use or contamination or anything actually that, that would affect Native people. That's something that the United States and Canada have basically written out. They, they do talk about things like cons consultation, but consultation is not consent. And consultation is also not free and prior uh, information. I mean, a lot of times th these, these consultations happen with an absence uh, or a lack of information, they the weight of these consultations is not made clear. So when they have a comment period or you know or some some level of consultation, it is basically a box checking exercise for the United States to say, okay, well we did that. Now we can move on. But it is by no means adequate consultation. It is by no means a full um, example of transparency, and it certainly doesn't obtain consent. Especially, it doesn't obtain, obtain consent from the people. Oftentimes, the very people they're getting consent from are the federally recognized leaders that have been propped up by the United States or Canada in the first place. So it, it's problematic. But, but even with those shortcomings, you know, that uh, there is, hasn't been a real firm commitment from, from Deb Haaland on, on any of this. You know, and, and again, I, I think it's, it's worth reading the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But 
to be clear, it's not it's it's not a, uh, a a fix. It's not a panacea for all that all the problems that exist between native peoples and uh, and the colonial empires around them. Um, so I, I wanted I wanted to say that, and we'll see. She doesn't have the authority, even in her now elevated position, one that you know the New York Times said is the first time in 500 years a native person has had this kind of power. Well, I don't know about that, but um, but. She doesn't have the authority to bind the United States to the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but she's, but she also hasn't really been clear about her position on that. So that leaves a big question mark about what it would mean for her department to utilize the standard laid out in the UN Declaration of the Rights of, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that being free, prior, and informed consent. Now, the hope is that she will make sure that our voices have a our, our our people have a seat at the table she isn't our seat at the table she is the person who sets the table and and so i think it's really important to you know to make to make that clear so will she invite not just native voices but the right native voices on on a variety of issues to to sit at the table now to be clear the interior department has a has a broad range of responsibilities yeah, you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is is sits within the Interior Department. You know, the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of mining and extractive industries that are that are regulated under the Interior Department. So there, there's a lot of there are a lot of issues that that she will have some oversight over that impact Native people, and and I don't want to diminish that. Now. Do I or does anybody really expect a wholesale shift in and how the Interior Department has dealt with some of these issues? Because be clear, the Interior Department has not adequately provided native consultation on, on, and, on these issues. And in fact, for most of its history, the Interior Department has been a very oppressive force against native people. They have done everything from, you know, participated in trying to kill our language, our culture, our, you know, any of our any of the things that make us who we are. They have participated in, in stripping not only land, but land use away. So the, the track record of the Interior Department, not just the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but the Interior Department, is, is not very good. So should the expectation be that she doesn't make it worse? Um, that's not an adequate expectation. That's not, that's not, look, I, I got a low bar, <laughs> but, but, but that bar is way too low. I think we have to really look at, at the, at the, uh, deficiencies and correct many of them. Now, and when I say that most of the deficiencies I'm concerned about are not about what I expect the interior department to do for us. It's about what I expect the Interior Department to do to regulate the states and the various industries that are doing things that impact us. Native gaming, for instance, and, and I've talked about this and I'm going to talk about it here again. There is one bar that I refuse to lower here, and that is the bar that the Interior Department has the, they are the government agency, the, the federal agency that is responsible for enforcing the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. I'm not a fan of the law, but, uh, but the law was supposed to have been produced to protect Native peoples from organized crime and overly aggressive states as we were entering into the gaming industry. It didn't provide us 
with the legal right to do gaming, nor did the, the Supreme Court decision a, a year earlier called Cabazon, nor did that Supreme Court ruling give us the right to do gaming. The Supreme Court ruling affirmed that we had the right. It just acknowledged that we had the right. And in fact, some of the language, if anything, diminished some of that because some of the language suggested that if a state had, did gaming, then a native peoples within that state could do gaming. I don't even know if that standard should have been you know, been there. I mean, if, if the United States has gaming, then why should it matter whether the state that's around us ha have gaming? But anyway, um, so when the, when the Cabazon ruling came, which which was a um, the attempt by California to shut down a high stakes, I think it was only bingo, uh, a gaming facility on the Cabazon uh, reservation, um, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cabazons. And the immediate reaction was to pass IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Now, we didn't need IGRA for us to do gaming, but what IGRA did provide us was, it or, or not so much us, but what it did is it provided the contracts and the, the vendors and the financiers and all those people that we would need to really advance and, and produce world-class gaming facilities it, it gave them cover. It said, okay, now there's a, a U.S., a, a legal federal statute that shows that your interaction, your contracting with native gaming enterprises is legal. In the absence of that, it was a crapshoot. I mean, it was hard. Some, some vendors who had gaming licenses in, in states like Nevada or, or uh, uh, New Jersey were somewhat hesitant to do any major contracts with us because they didn't want to risk their state licenses in those states because they were possibly contracting with, with people that the, the, either the state of New York or whatever state it might be, um, you know, questioned the legitimacy. So IGRA solved that. It, it gave the vendors the green light to do contracting with us. And by vendors, I do mean lenders and, and consultants and, and all, you know, all kinds of uh, things, builders, contractors, all that stuff, designers. So it, it opened up the door, and it was it a necessary door? Yeah, it probably was somewhat necessary. I mean, the, we we could have lived along without um, a federal law protecting our vendors, but um, that's part of the reason that so many native territories uh, decided to pursue gaming under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Not that it was, not that we agree that it was necessarily required, but it certainly gave us the opportunities to, to produce world class gaming. Now, the problem is there are certain thing, provisions within that, the gaming law that the, the Interior Department was, was supposed to make sure uh, were followed. Among those was, was the prohibition against states to tax native gaming. Yeah, I mean, and it's clear in the law that the states cannot impose a fee or a tax uh, and, and, and force revenue out of native gaming. That's prohibited by law. But what's allowed is what they called revenue sharing. And revenue sharing was a provision that the Interior Department laid out the ground rules for. And they said, look, if a state is willing to make a concession that it has substantial value and is quantifiable to a native gaming enterprise to give them some sort of advantage and, and to do something that's going to help their business, then the native gaming operation can share a percentage of revenue with the state that's that's equitable to the, the concession the state has made. 
Now, more often than not, that concession is some form of exclusivity. In states like Connecticut, the native gaming has the exclusive right to do gaming. The, the state of Connecticut doesn't compete. They don't have you know, gaming operations to compete directly against, say, Foxwood or, or Mohegan Sun. Now, here in uh, Seneca Territory, what New York State offered was exclusivity in the counties west of, uh, including Rochester, west of Rochester, New York. Uh, 15 counties altogether, I think it is. And this exclusivity was supposed to give the Seneca Nation a, uh, you know, a competitive advantage. The problem is New York State didn't give something up for that. For one thing, New York State couldn't do casino gaming. They couldn't do it. It was against their law. They, they had a constitutional uh, uh, prohibition against casino gaming in the New York State Constitution. So they didn't give up casino gaming to the, to the states. They just basically gave lip service, said, well, we won't build casinos. Well, of course you won't build casinos. You, could, you can't. But to the extent the state could compete against Seneca Nation, they did. And let me explain. So what the state did was they danced around their, their prohibition and they enhanced or extended what gaming could happen at their horse racing tracks since they were already gambling institutions. So what, the, what New York State did was turn all of the horse racing tracks in the state into gaming parlors, they, they, slot parlors. They brought in you know, big expansions into those horse racing tracks that were losing money and they were, it was a dying industry. So they turned them all into, into, and they called them casinos. They actually called these horse track facilities casinos. Three of them are in the what it was supposed to be the exclusivity zone of the Seneca Nation. And the, and the Seneca Nation was paying what will end up being $1.4 billion for that exclusivity, which really didn't exist. So again, let me say, say it to be clear. To the extent New York State could compete legally within their law, forget about whatever their... their uh, their state gaming compact provided to the extent that they could compete against the Seneca nation. They did. And they did it within the area that they were supposed to be giving uh, exclusivity to. They built three large facilities that had slot parlors in them. And, you know, they just happened to be located at horse racing tracks. So the value of that, that exclusivity was not equal or in any way close to equal to the revenue that the Seneca Nation was sharing. Now, the Interior Department, their job is to regulate that, and they didn't, and, and they haven't. I mean, look, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is over 30 years old. The Interior Department has never regulated it. So when I ask, where's the bar for Deb Hallen? It's to do that. I mean, there are other things that, that I think she needs to do. But this isn't new law. This is old law. This is a 30-year-old law. Just enforce the 30-year-old law. And it isn't just about the revenue-sharing provisions. There's also a big problem with the, with the idea that under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the, the native territory and the states need to, need to uh, enter into a gaming compact. And so once that compact has been entered into, the question ends up being, if the state decides they don't want to have that compact anymore, they don't want to renew it because let's say, let's say, for example, they want a higher revenue sharing agreement, a higher level of revenue sharing, or they want to extend it. And, and let's say the native territory doesn't want to. 
all of a sudden, whether it's equitable or not doesn't even come into the into the equation. The question ends up being for the native territory, if we don't provide revenue sharing to the state, they won't renew the compact and then we're, then we're shut down. Now, the law isn't clear there. The law may require that the state and the native community, native territory enter into the compact, but there's nothing in the law that says what happens if a state decides to walk away from a compact. So the implication is that a state can simply walk away from a compact and shut down a native casino, although it doesn't really say that in the law. It's, it's implied. It's, not, it's, not, it's implicit, not explicit. So that's the other thing that Deb Hallen needs to do. She needs to be clear in making that determination explicit. She's got to make it clear that if a state walks away from a compact, then a native territory that has now invested maybe half a billion dollars into their enterprise and may be the largest, in, in the case of the Seneca Nation here, one of the largest employers in all of Western New York, that the state can't shut them down just to be vindictive or to try to squeeze money out of them through, through revenue sharing. So that's the other thing that, that the Interior Department needs to do. And anything short of addressing those two questions is a failure on the, on the part of Deb Allen, in my opinion. And if she does those two things, well, shut my mouth. <laughs> and, and I will actually, um, I'll, look, I'll, I'll praise the work that she's done. I'll, I'll still have some other issues that we need to address. But that's one of them that I, will, uh, that I could go on being silent about. Now, I always raise that there's three questions. The, the, other, third, the other question was, when some of these territories, like the Seneca Nation, have, have, when they've entered into um, binding arbitration as a part of their compact, if through the ruling of that binding arbitration, it changes the, the compact, and, and it's not, again, not a, a mutual change, but a unilateral change, because you could have, a in the case of the Seneca Nation, they had two of the three judges in an arbitration panel say, no, the Seneca Nation, you have to keep paying, even though the language in the compact doesn't say you have to. The third judge in that arbitration panel said, these two guys just rewrote the compact. So the question, that, that third question that I have is, if a, if a, even if it's a court of law, but whether a court of law, an arbitration panel, or in any way, shape, or form, the, the state has the ability to add language to a compact that, that the, you know, in this case, the Senate Nation didn't agree to, shouldn't that change have to be authorized and approved by the Interior Department. Now, I would assume that they, uh, on, depending on what the what the change is, that they'd have to scrutinize it, and they and they can't look at this change in the compact as one that both sides agreed to. Look, I think the Interior Department has approved some some pretty crappy um, gaming compacts, but most of the time they approach these compacts from the standpoint that. Well, the state and the and, and the native territory has has negotiated, and this is what they agree upon. So the fact that the Interior Department could say, "Well, we're not crazy about it," but since they both agree to to these you know these stipulations and these regulations, we'll approve it, or we'll we'll punt. So we won't approve it, but we won't disapprove it, which is essentially the same thing as approving it. But in a case where one side says, "No, we are against this change." And it's only because of a court or an arbitration panel that that change is being imposed upon us. It's no longer a mutually agreed upon compact. Now it's now again, it's heavy handed. It's an aggressive state taking advantage of the system that is built by white people to control native people. So 
the three questions that I, you know, that I say that Deb Haaland has to address with the interior part, and she needs to do it quickly, by the way, because this is, you know, a uh, an issue that's been out there for the Seneca Nation. She needs to one, make sure that any changes in a compact, regardless of whether it comes from an arbitration panel, a judge, or or whoever, a governor, <clears throat> that the uh, the Interior Department has to authorize those changes. And in a situation where it's it's a unilateral change, I think it needs, I don't know how uh, the Interior Department could, could approve something that the native gaming enterprise doesn't agree with just because it's being forced upon them by the, the non-native systems. So there's that. And again, they, they need to make sure that the revenue sharing agreements that exist are legal under IGRA because most of them are not. I mean, just by the the, the plain language of the uh, Interior Department's interpretation about what a, what a legal revenue sharing ag agreement would be, most of them are not. And of course, the third thing, as I said, that if a state walks away from a compact, it 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 is not tantamount to them having the power to shut down a native casino. Those three things. Anything that if she doesn't address those three issues, <clears throat> then her. Uh, then her tenure is a failure. Then all of the euphoria and, and everybody who's, you know, claimed how great it is to have somebody in that position should just shut the, shut the hell up. Because if she's not going to do this, which is a pretty low bar, it's, it's, it's an, an impactful change. I mean, it would be an impactful change for the Interior Department to actually do its freaking job. But it's not rewriting anything. It's just enforcing, you know, what was touted as the intent. Now I'm not convinced that Igra had all really was created to to be some wonderful thing for native people. But the way it was sold to us was that it was going to protect us from them. So my ask of Deb Hallen is enforce your law against your people. That includes your states, that includes your industries, that includes, you know, whoever. And that's not just gaming. That's, you know, extractive industries, that's, you know, highway departments, that's counties, all of that stuff. So that's where I come out on, on Deb Hallen. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that she will do some of these things and that the, the gaming piece alone, that she will address it. But if she doesn't, then you know, as far as I'm concerned, um, she deserves any attack she gets, including from me. From me. All right. So I did say, say I had a couple of issues. One of the other issues I wanted to mention, uh, if you follow this show, if you follow my my podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Kane, you know I get involved in the Native mascot issue. <clears throat> and I want to explain so people understand what the real problem is. I mean, we, because, look, we, we hear a lot of language that, you know, well, it's racist, it's, um, you know, the... The mascots themselves are racist. The words, the names, the nicknames, the monikers, the logos, all that stuff are racist. And in some cases, I think that's true. But Braves, is that a racist word? Um, I don't know that that works as a, as a racist word. Now, utilizing any native imagery, when a, when a non-native enterprise or township or professional organization appropriates native imagery i think that is a racist practice it doesn't mean that the words they use are necessarily native or even the logos they use are are necessarily racist i mean i somebody asked me well what about the seattle Haw seahawks that that imagery you know is 
looks like it's been appropriated from the Northwestern art, uh, artistic style. And, and I think it is an appropriation. Now, it's not on me to, to decide whether that's offensive or not. I think the people who, who, have a, who are the stakeholders of that culture are the ones to, to say that. But the word Seahawks isn't, and they're not mocking our people with, with their logo. So I, I think that may be okay. But when a non-native enterprise or, like I said, community appropriates a native culture, and then what they do, they, rec they recreate it. They ignore all the history. See, if you're going to say that you are calling yourselves the Indians to pay homage to us, well, for one thing, let's be clear. You're not. You're, it isn't about us. When you are calling yourselves Indians or Redmen or, or even Braves, it's about you. You see, you haven't lived the 500 years of genocide. You have none of the, the historical trauma that comes with the interaction between the United States and its predecessors and, and ours. So... You don't have the massacres. You don't have the scalping for bounties. You don't have the residential schools. You don't have the intentional spread of disease. You don't have the rape culture. You don't have the enslavement. You don't have any of that stuff to consider when you're, when you're taking on our images for your mascot. No, you get to say brave warrior. You get to say noble savage. You get to say, you know, strength and, uh, and, and dignity and, you know, you know, a fierceness. You get to grab all of these characteristics that may or may not even be true, but that you have that not, you have now assigned our people. You even get to create the images. So whether you use a, you know a Plains Indian headdress on the East Coast, <laughs> or whether you you know use some other image that you know some clip art um, image from from the internet, you you have no sense for accuracy even historical accuracy, and, and even when you do, you take a timestamp about what you're going to let your institution, and it's worse with schools, you, that you're going to let your school teach children that this is what an Indian is. And you're going to teach them that this Indian means all of these things. You're not going to teach any of the history. And if you are a school that has used a native mascot for 70, 80, maybe 100 years, and, and you're not native. And in fact, in most of these places, native people represent less than, you know, 1% of the, of the school's uh, student body or population of the town, for that matter. But you're going to use it. And then all of a sudden you say, well, we're going to now introduce native history. Well, you're only going to do it now? You've had that mascot for 70, 70 80 years? And now you want, to, you want to introduce native history? Well, why is that? Well, I'll tell you why it is. It's not to fix the problem. It's to prolong the problem. This is what you're doing to backfill, to try to justify appropriating a culture for your amusement and entertainment, for mockery. And, and that's what it is. I mean, I, I know people can say, well, no, we're not mocking Native people. Look, if you're white and you think it's okay to put a headdress on or red face, or even if you're not that that bold, maybe you're just going to have a label across the, the chest of your uniform and it says Indians, and you're going to go on for decades claiming that you're a Cambridge Indian? That's mockery. 
If you're going to try to grab our identity and claim it for yourselves, that is mockery. That's the definition of mockery. It's, it's imitating, right? It, it's about claiming to be something that you're obviously not. That's, the, that's essentially the definition of mockery. Now, we can get into how offensive that mockery is, but let's not pretend that it isn't mockery, and let's not, let's not pretend that you get to decide whether it's offensive or not. So, but like, like I was saying, the, the problem is you don't have to bring to the table as you're promoting the image of what a Native person is any of the historical trauma that we, we carry with us. And I'm not talking about from, from hundreds of years ago, residential schools where children were beaten, sexually abused, murdered, allowed to die with tuberculosis and, and, and any number. These schools had, had graveyards to them. Some of them were, were, were set up for mass burial. That's what your schools were. And they were government-funded and church-run. The goal of these schools was to kill the Indian and save the man. So, and by kill, they literally meant that. I mean, look, there's something, well, they don't really mean kill. They meant kill the, the culture. Well, you know what? That, by definition, is genocide. So the schools themselves, and it wasn't cultural genocide. It was genocide because our, our, not only did our kids die, and I say our kids, they're actually our grandparents. I mean, but, but they were kids at the time. They died. But the goal was to eliminate us as a distinct people. That's, that's, that's the intent of assimilation. Assimilation isn't to make our lives better. It's to make the problem go away. And the problem being the black eye that Native people represent in, in American history. So when you adopt us as a mascot, you erase all that history. Some people say, well, if we strip away the mascot, that's erasure. No, erasure is the mascot because you don't teach residential schools. You don't teach that Abraham Lincoln signed the largest mass execution in the history of the United States a week. And that execution took place a week before the Emancipation Proclamation. No, you don't teach any of that stuff. You don't balance the history of your heroes against the, the real live um, atrocities that your heroes committed against, against my people. And if you did, even if you taught that history, the question has to be asked, would you want us to be your mascot then? Would, would you want a people whose heads you would slice the scalps off of as a proof of a kill in women, children, and men? And pay bounties for that? Would you want those people for your mascot? And if you're saying yes, then I'm asking why. And if you're going to say that we're these, these proud defenders of the earth, then why are you all of these schools located on places that we're no longer there? Look, I'm not begrudging my people for not mounting a strong enough defense. There, was a, there are a lot of things at play here, not just military superiority. There was disease. There was, there was fraud. There was deception. There was a lot of things. It wasn't just, look, in the history of the United States, there is only, at best, 50 documented armed conflicts between the United States and various Native peoples throughout the, throughout the continent. 50. Well, there's, all, there's over 500 distinct Native people. So how could those conflicts... You, be translated into into conquest it wasn't conquest i mean there, there was there was domination and and a lot of that was done through you know through deceit and among the things that are being done that that is deceitful are mascots 
Look, if you're an institution of education, if you're a, a school whose job it is to teach children, and, and most schools know that teaching any child that a stereotype is proper is wrong. They know that you, teaching kids to identify people through stereotypes is wrong, except when it comes to Native people. When it comes to Native people, not only do you create these stereotypical images, but the, what the stereotypical images imply is that we're not here anymore. I heard an NPR story that said 40% of Americans don't know that Native people still exist. 40%. And 70% don't know to what extent we exist and, and what that even means. And, and I would argue that it's even, look, there are a lot of Native people who don't know what that means. So am I a citizen of the United States? Well, I would say I'm not. My, that's my position. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean there are Native people who don't consider themselves U.S. citizens? Yeah, that's that's a that's a, that's part of the reason I have issues with with folks like Deb Haaland and and other people who who not only promote voting in in the U.S. elections but participating in in the run for those offices. I don't believe that Native people should enlist in the armed forces. I don't believe that that Native people should accept that in 1924. They jammed citizenship. They declared citizenship over us. I mean, that's not the same thing as me asking for it. So, yeah, I'm, the the uh, you know the, the overwhelming majority of Americans have no idea what a native existence is today. They have some image. Most of it came from TV or cartoons or um, you know Hollywood. You know, back in the in the Western era of Hollywood these images of what native people are but they have no no understanding of what what contemporary life is for native people and to the extent that they do it's oftentimes again stereotyped oh yeah casinos yeah they're all rich oh yeah they're all drunks or yeah they're all this there you know this this you know this characterization that comes out of these stereotypes created not by us but by you just like these mascots now we could argue that in your recreation of our image for mascots, it was done to embellish who we are. But again, if you only did it so you could claim those characteristics and ignore any of the atrocities, well, that's a problem. Look, the only thing close to comparing what Native people have experienced with this appropriation of our images for for uh for school mascots and and pro but you know i'm, I'm not pr pretty much talking about just schools is blackface i mean when in the vaudeville era and you know coming at you know at the at the turn of the 20th century the idea that white men like al jolson could create an entire career by by performing in blackface now so what was the purpose? What was the purpose of a, of a guy like Al Jolson wearing blackface? Well, he was entertaining. So he was amusing people, entertaining people. He was he was creating something for himself to, to um, you know, to enrich himself. Al Jolson in his in his, you know, the height of his career was the most successful and considered the greatest American entertainer. And he did it in blackface. Now, was he insulting black people by doing it? Yeah. Yeah, he was. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't, you know, passing himself off as black to make himself 
a greater human being. No, he was doing it to be more entertaining, comical. It, it was poking fun. And in fact, the you know the blackface was exaggerated. Big lips and you know black, black, black skin. It was not done to compliment. I mean, and that's where you know even though I'm comparing blackface to redface, the the two things are different. But here's the other thing that's different. Society condemns blackface today. But it's not quite there when it comes to condemning redface or tomahawk chops or white men in headdresses or you know or Disney, you know, turning Pocahontas into a, into, into into a bit of a sex symbol by lowering, you know, showing the, you know, so much skin, high skirt, low shoulders. And and then, you know, creating this myth that there was some romantic relationship between Pocahontas and Captain John Smith, who, who they, you know, illustrate as this giant of a, of, of a white man. So, which, which only furthers that whole rape culture, the male dominance culture over the demure, you know, Pocahontas. And America laughed as Donald Trump kept referring to Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas. And, and every time he'd say, well, many call her. No, not many, you. So this is the world that we live in. And even though we live in this world that would now condemn blackface, it, we're not in a world where enough of you are condemning redface or headdresses or any of the derogatory slurs. Look, the Washington football team, in this past year, dropped its name Redskin. We've been we've been fighting this thing for over 50 years, 60, 70 years. This has been been opposed by, by native people. And it only changed now because with this call for social justice, in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder and George Floyd's murder and the the rise and uh, prominence of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, financial interest said. We can't keep doing this. I mean, there was already some handwriting on the wall that Washington and, and other places like Cleveland baseball were, were getting pressure that there was an inappropriateness with their, with their names and their imagery. But until FedEx said, you are not going to give you FedEx field anymore. Until Nike and, uh, and Walmart and Amazon basically said, we're not going to market Washington football ball gear on our platforms if um, if unless you change your name. So all of a sudden, Washington changes the name, <laughs> a name that they swore. And Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington football team, said it's never going to change. And you can put that in capital in caps, he said. Well, it did change. Now, I'm not praising Washington football for making the change or Dan Snyder. I and I'm and. <laughs> And it's hard because, you know, on one hand, I do want to praise the financial interests that help push the cause. But, you know, this has represented injustice for many years. So it's hard for me to get too excited and, and heap too much praise on Amazon, you know, until there was enough clamor to get, you know, some of these these sponsors of, uh, of a team to make noise about it. You know, look, we, we've been silenced for many, many years. And, and on that note, let me say this. I, I hear people try to dismiss the um, the opposition to mascots. They say, well, that's all just liberal snowflakes or it's uh, part of the cancel culture. It's, it's you know, political correctness run amok. 
yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of people who are weak and just are easily offended. No, we're not weak. We've been fighting this for a long time, not out of weakness, but out of strength. And we are now more empowered. Cancel culture isn't about canceling culture. Cancel culture is about empowering yourself to stand up to false narratives and canceling something in, in your life that shouldn't be there. So whether it's a Harvey Weinstein or whether it's police abuse or whether it's mascots. Yeah, it's cancel culture, but it's, it's not about canceling culture. It's about, it's about canceling false narratives and, and misappropriation and, and, and things that are flat out racist. So we are empowered now. So our voices are being heard. And, you know, look, we're not fixing it all. We, we have a lot of challenges. Some of them I talked about even with Deb Haaland. We have a lot of, we have a lot of things to fight, fight for and fight over. And we have demands, not demands that we want something given to us. We want certain things to stop. And the appropriation of our culture for your amusement and entertainment. Look, I'm not saying don't make movies about Native people. I'm not saying that. But if you're going to mock us as a, as, a, as a white community, if you're going to mock our existence, misrepresent our existence, just so you can trot, trot onto a football field, well, so many people are always quick to bring up, well, Florida State, they worked it out with the Seminoles. You know what Florida State does? They ride a white boy out on a horse, and they call the white boy Chief Osceola, runs him out on a football field, and he throws a spear. So they got a spear-chucking white boy playing Chief Osceola riding out on a horse on a football field. The Seminoles were not a horse culture. Again, that's Plains Indian stuff, right? So the misrepresentation is what continues. So for not only for, even for not for college kids do they get this misrepresentation, but there's a lot of kids who see this imagery all the time. Florida State claims that that is the most successful mascot campaign they've ever done, running, the, running Chief Osceola out on a, on a football field on a horseback to throw a spear. So it's wrong. It's, it's not just inappropriate. And is it offensive? Again, I go back to what I started with. The most offensive thing is, is that we carry the intergenerational trauma of what the relationship has been between Native people and non-Native people, between Native people and the United States, to the very townships that claim to call themselves Indian to honor us when we're not there anymore. We were run off of those lands. We were murdered for those lands. So the fact that we have this, that we carry this trauma forward, and we're still fighting. We're, look, every one of those kids who grows up in a school where that's the image they have as a Native person, they don't know who we are. So they become the policymakers of today. Some of them are in Washington, D.C. today. You're working as lawyers and lobbyists and, and pages or, or whatever else. And this is the view that they have of Native people. So if that's the view they have of us, and it's never been corrected, oh, no. not It's been reinforced, this negative and this false stereotype and narrative has, has been reinforced by their, by their educational institutions, grade school, high school, and even some colleges. 
We were going to confront it eventually anyway. You think, well, it's just a town of white people. None of that, what they, what white people do in white communities, that's their business. No, eventually their business becomes our business and we have to confront that. So let's tell the truth. Oh, there we go. That's a new one. And if you tell that truth, if you're honest about what native people have experienced and the fact that we're still here, would you still think it's appropriate? I mean, you know, blackface isn't. Would you still think red face is appropriate? There's a question for you. Now, should this require state law or federal law? I don't know. You would you, you would think it. If there's no state law. I don't think there's a law prohibiting blackface. But you see every every year somebody gets caught up in some scandal about, you know, being in blackface when they're in college or in high school or, you know, Justin Trudeau, prime minister of Canada, a couple of these judges or I think a governor in Virginia or something was was you know, had to, had to work his way out of that. You know it's inappropriate. Well, how about we, we take a solid look at what, what Native people are experiencing in the same way, in much the same way. Condemn the practice. If you've got to pass a law, then you pass a law. But it's really, really important that we put a stop to this, this racist act. Now, this is in Deb Hallen's work. You got a you got an education secretary. Let's see what they do. But there should be pressure. And you know what? Should social justice be taxed? Should there be an effort to make sure that that there's a you know some sort of tax violation or or certainly a limit on receiving um, revenue if you can't meet some really low standard, low bar for social justice? Well, maybe there should be. And, and I think that's something that's, that, that has to be looked at here. So, again, I want to thank you for listening to the program. Uh, we are Resistance Radio on WPFW in Washington, D.C. You know, spread the word. Some of your folks in Washington really need to hear some of what I had to say today. So spread the word and make sure you contribute to WPFW. Again, as I go out, let me give the, give the, the, the number the number to call to make a contribution is 202-588-9739, or you can go online to WPFWFM.org, follow the prompts, and make a donation to WPFW in the name of Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Thank you. Yahweh.